This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I should say host, but also realtors with Oakwind Realty in Vancouver. And I'm so excited today because we've got Jason Turcott in the studio. That's Jason right. is uh, the president of Darwin Properties. Darwin, really well-known build development company, uh, does a ton of stuff on the North Shore. Super excited to have Darwin on the show. Darwin's first appearance on the show His name's uh, Jason. As, as a development Oh, uh, as a developer, okay. uh, Jason's third appearance on the oh, show. Oh, I see what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, do you see okay. where I'm going yeah, here? Yeah. And uh, Jason was obviously on twice in his former role as the VP of development at Cressy. That's right. Yeah, Jason is uh, ha- has been on the show a number of times. Always a good guest. I was thinking about it before we had him back in the studio, which was great. It's just good to have a you know a guy, really smart guy, yes. tons of experience. He's been around for a long time in the marketplace. What's going on? What are they doing? How are they thinking about it? It's just, it's it's like picking the brain of a guy like Jason. It's always a, it's always a real treat for us he's here also at the seen Real Estate us, Podcast. Yeah, he's also seen us in various versions of our studio. That's right. Yeah. Um, from, from, from the lows to the highs and back to the lows. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's great having Jason uh, on the show today. Couple uh, housekeeping items. Um, one, of course, today's episode is sponsored by Scalina Real Estate. That's right. Which, of course, is our real estate company. And Matt, you have a featured listing that's that's listed at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That's right. This is one of our latest listings. This is incredible value in East Vancouver. So this is at Strathcona Village. Yes. I think most people will know Strathcona Village. That is on Hastings Street by Clark. It's the building that looks like shipping containers because Wall it's financial. near the, near the port. tank. Yeah, it's an, an amazing building. This is 605-983 East Hastings. It's a two-bed two bath unit in a 2018 building for 719900 wow so this is this is incredible value it's a corner home parking storage really great floor plan nice views either side now there's the water mountain side but there's also expansive city views at Strathcona Village so check it out 605983 East Hastings at com. and while you're there you're going to want to check out the sold plan. Yeah, sold plans, uh, sold stands in our case uh, for start on launch date. And you basically, you pick your launch date. Then there's instructions for two weeks prior to launch, what you need to do to get your home ready for, for listing. And this is a really straightforward step-by-step guide. It's to get top dollar in the shortest amount of time. It's free on our site. Just click sell with us. You'll get an instant download. And if you're in the industry and you want to review the materials, maybe maybe learn something from them or add, add something uh, to your own marketing materials, feel free to download it. We're happy to share with everybody. And Matt, there's one more thing I want to mention. Pumpkin patch. 
Right. Yeah. Well, we are getting close to uh, Halloween. To Halloween. Yeah. yeah. Remember, I think in our first year we did a. Um, we had somebody who was would do the haunted tours. Yeah. The historical haunted. We tours. were finding our legs at that time. Yeah, that was odd. <laughs> we had a guy come and tell like six Vancouver ghost stories on the show. Yeah, uh, pretty good though. It was good. Oh, yeah. it was it was good. Yeah, I feel but, like we would never do that now, but maybe we should start <laughs> going back towards. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe we will. We've got two weeks. <laughs> Anyways, this is uh, our our good friend uh, over at Fabric, which uh, is a development company. They've done a lot of great projects in East Vancouver. Jordan McDonald, a good friend of the show, who's actually going to be on the show. We're recording he's never, this Friday. He's never been on the show before. He's been on the commercial podcast, yes, uh, the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast, but Jordan has never been on the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. So exciting times. We've been trying to get him only for, what, about five years? He's, he's been, been dodging eight. us. Yeah. Dodging us. So anyways, we're, we're getting Jordan on the show, but Fabric is actually putting on a pumpkin patch in East Vancouver Something a little scary about this one. It's haunted. And oh. it's uh, Sunday, October 22nd, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. There's free pumpkins. Bring the kids. It is at 2835 Kamloops Street, the location of The Cut, which is a brand new uh, new development project built by Fabric coming soon. And I got to say, they got Vancouver's biggest pumpkin there. This and is the, kind of a, that's an interesting thing. Well, this pumpkin, though, they got a, he, he texted me a photo of this thing. This I don't even know how they got it in. Really? Really? Yeah. This is like, they probably used a crane, the same crane that they're building the building. Yeah. With. Where are we going to get a crane? <laughs> it's a, it's So you have to guess the weight of this pumpkin. Okay. It's Vancouver's biggest pumpkin. You can win an iPhone 15. So I understand we're on an iPhone 20, so it's yeah. not a huge, <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. No, it, it is the most current version of the iPhone. I, I had to Google that. But right. An iPhone 15. Okay, so so you get a free pumpkin, you yes. get the chance to win an iPhone 15, bring the friends and family. This sounds like a great event. I don't know if you have to guess the exact weight, but Probably I guess the you closest. have to be the closest. It's a bit of a Wheel of Fortune type scenario. And if you're last, you get to say a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> What's the address again and what time? 2835 Kamloops Street. It's 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. There are free pumpkins. And what? which um, day? And this is on Sunday, October 22nd. So bring the kids. That's like the perfect time. I'm I'm going to be there uh, getting the free pumpkins. Yeah. Guessing as well. I need a new phone. Uh, so we're, yeah, we're all going to be there. Fantastic. Can't wait. Matt, without further ado, let's uh, let's cut to our conversation with Jason Turcott. Absolutely. This is a fantastic episode. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam, with 165 homes ranging from junior one-beds to three-beds. Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. 
or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Jason Turcott. He is president of Darwin Properties. How you doing, Jason? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me. We should say past guest fan favorite, but it's been it's been a dog's age. It's, it's been, been a dog's uh, age. We were talking. It was uh, probably 2018, I would think, or maybe no, even, maybe even earlier than that. Do you think? Well, I know you were on in the early days. You were one of the first people that legitimized the show. Uh, <laughs> a lot less gray in my beard back then, I bet. Yeah. But I'm trying to think of the last, because I think you've been on at least twice. I think it was just the one time, yeah. Really? It was, it was definitely early days, yeah. yeah. Wait a second, were you not... Uh, uh, we'll, we'll have to go, uh, we'll have to get the uh, facts check. Fact hold checkers. on, okay, okay. So here's what I hear, and this is not of interest probably to anybody, but the three of us and maybe not even all of us, but... Uh, <laughs> you were uh, you <laughs> so <laughs> i remember the, the first time you were on for sure were you not on talking about format with um oh, yeah. the, what's with, his um, um from Savio Volpe with uh, the, the Craig uh, Stankata. Oh, that's Stankata. Oh, I, I might have been. You, I think you were. I think you were. Did we do it remote? Maybe we that's why it. I don't remember. I think we did it. I know. With like no, coffees no, it and no, it wasn't here. No, it wasn't here. Okay, well, then it, you know what it was. You know where it was. It was probably in our uh, the bento box. Can't, in the Mount Pleasant yeah. studio. Anyway, I think you were, I th- I'm pretty sure you were there. That's all coming I, back to I, me I could now. be wrong. Yeah, no, we definitely, that was fun working with Craig on that project. That was cool. Right. Yeah. He's a neat guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, for our listeners that don't know you, Jason, or for people that have been listening very recently, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I, I'm uh, the president of Darwin Properties for a, um, a North Shore focused development company, or at least traditionally have been. And I am a North Shore guy through and through. I've lived on the North Shore uh, since I was six and still live there now. And and obviously I've been doing real estate development for now 20 odd years, 20 years about, and uh, was previously for the the entirety of my career before joining Darwin was at, was at Cressy. And I know that Hanny was on as a recent guest. I'm having lunch with him right after this actually. Oh, right on. Uh, which is kind of fun. But uh, yeah, so that's that's sort of my deal in a nutshell. And why real estate, Jason? Not unlike a lot of people, it was just a family event. I grew up on construction sites because my father was was in the on the construction side of this business, was actually with Cressy for a very long time, has since retired. And I, I grew up pushing brooms and painting hoarding and pounding rebar into 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 concrete, like you know, just grunt work and realized at a pretty early age that it's a pretty cool thing, but that's a, that's a tough way to earn a living. And, uh, you know, so I pursued the business side of it and got a business degree and then, uh, phoned Scott Cressy when I was done in 2003 and said, I want to come work for you, but I want to work on the development side of this business. And at that time, Hanny, we just mentioned had, uh, had joined about a year earlier and we had amassed a bunch of new acquisitions and it was sink or swim time at at Cressy. And, and really the rest is kind of history. We just went about getting projects developed and before you know it, 18 years had gone by. Well, so one thing that, um, and both of the last potentially two times you've been on the show, you were, you were with Cressy. It's interesting to think your, your dad worked at Cressy as well. So this is, that's like, you know, it's a family business, but it's your family's business essentially. I guess, 
can you talk about the change and maybe in in a positive way, what excited you about Darwin Properties for you to make the the shift away from that uh, role at Cressy? Yeah, I think you know, like I said, it had, it had been a long run at Cressy, and it's a it's a great group there. Obviously, I'm still very close, and it still very much feels like family to me. You know, Hanny and and Scott and and some of the senior people there, I've known a very very long time and have a tremendous respect and admiration for. You know, going back to that that time where I was, you know, considering this this option, it was really a, a time where I felt like I was ready to just look at something differently. I was ready to to take on a new challenge. And we had some younger guys at, at Cressy who were also ready to take their next step and and were nipping at my heels and and saw opportunity for them. And and when Oliver Webb from Darwin, the the CEO, uh, called me to talk about whether I'd be interested in joining it. It was a bit of a surprise. And, and Oliver and I have some history in the sense that we we played hockey together as seven-year-olds. And we weren't friends oh, wow. by any stretch, but we knew of each other and he knew I was in the industry. So we would on occasion connect and, you know, talk shop. And uh, he put a, a, a package of all the stuff that he was working on on the table in front of me, right? You know, and it's all on the North Shore, the redevelopment of the Harry Jerome Rec Center, a project we're doing up at Capilano University, a project in West Vancouver. We're talking about places I grew up spending time at. I went to Cap College briefly. I, I played hockey at the Harry Jerome Rec Center. And it was really exciting, the idea of joining a group at a completely different stage in the company's life cycle. We're talking about more of an upstart, a much smaller group, uh, a group that really, frankly, needed somebody with with my kind of reps. I like to call it reps because there's there's something about starting and finishing a project that you learn that doesn't matter how smart you are or what business you come from, if you haven't done it, you can't replicate it. And as a young company, they didn't have the reps that that I had the the uh, fortune of being a part of. And uh, I felt like I could bring value to the group. And so I made the decision to to pursue something different. And it certainly has has been quite different and exciting. Maybe thinking about kind of the strategy, Darwin is focused almost exclusively on the North Shore. Do you see that as a as a benefit for uh, them as a developer? I, I think it was a, a very uh, interesting decision that Oliver, you know, pursued based on some advice that he got from meeting with a, um, a whole host of developers when he was trying to get into the business. And I believe it was Rob McCarthy from from Mosaic that said, "Just pick one thing and do it very, very well." You know, Oliver tells the story that he joked, well, I guess it won't be townhomes because you've already got that covered. Um, and so rather than go in the direction of, of product, he he made the decision to focus on his backyard, really the, the the area that he knew the best. And I remember we were a very young development company with with limited means. Uh, so they had to be creative deals, you know, and, and deal making is, is uh, Oliver's forte. And so having that particularly intimate knowledge and and personal connection to to landowners and and sort of what was happening on the north shore allowed him to put together some deals uh, creatively that that a that a company of our size needed to do and um i i think the strategy served well in the early days but in some ways having all of your eggs in just a, a couple of baskets meaning you know the municipalities that are there can also have its challenges right because you're you're in front of them all of the time and i think sometimes they get sick of seeing us and <laughs> so there's a bit of a, a potential challenge on it too and then you, you kind of outgrow it at some point and i think we're nearing that stage thinking about like some of the lar- some of the larger or maybe even largest development companies in the city where you start to see divisions of of labor and people almost operating in silos how is it different when working in in upstart yeah, we're needing to be much more nimble, right? You know, you have to have a greater 
uh, versatility with all of your staff. And, you know, having said that, we're a small company that sort of is out of its weight class in some in some uh, regards because we've through partnerships and and to this deal, creative deal making, we have quite a large portfolio. So we we haven't kind of gone to the silo, and I, I don't believe in that as a as an approach to this business. I think continuity of information flow and accountability is so important because you just can't document everything. We don't build widgets, right? They're they're very dynamic projects that have so much time associated with them that I believe very much in 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 people needing to be accountable. So. It's a long way of saying, you know, I, th- I think it's a bit of both. You need to have defined roles, but as a smaller company, there's no question we have to be a little more dynamic. And, and what does your day-to-day look like then at Darwin? My primary role is is to be an advisor, right? I mean, really, that's what it is. I'm there every day to make sure that I'm a resource to our development managers and our, our construction team, our, our marketing team. Uh, like, I go back to those reps, you know, just just being able to share the experiences that I've had over 20 years with the group and sort of coach them through challenges, avoid some of the pitfalls that I had to learn the hard way. I mean, that's, that's my primary objective. You know, maybe going back just, just a little bit, Jason, and, and I guess it's maybe Oliver's story more so, but before we, we went live, you were talking about kind of the way Darwin developed into a development company and and it has quite an extensive portfolio now. Can you talk with? It sounds like a starting capital of not all that much, right? So That's can right. you can you talk about your understanding of? I'm sure somebody out there is like, this is an interesting story of how to get into the development game. Can you talk a little bit about that that run up over the last fifteen years? Yeah, I mean. Like I said, I think it's first and foremost, it starts with Oliver's creativity as a deal maker. He's a, uh, you know, not everybody can do that. He had some foresight to get into some positions with land holdings uh, with relatively, you know, meager investment amounts and transition that into, you know, owning and, and being prepared to develop several large scale projects. And, you know, we're one of the larger landholders on the North Shore as a consequence of all of that hard work. Um, but I think the one piece that maybe is missing in that conversation is is the the history of our company as a, as a contractor. So we had this engine that um, that was sort of running in the background all through that that transition into being a developer and a builder that that afforded our group the opportunity to pursue these these deals with uh, with you know the cash flow and and infrastructure around it that you would need so to go do it you know from nothing would have been even even more difficult and so we had that we had that platform which i think gave them those opportunities Maybe shifting gears a little bit here, Jason, um, to the market. Um, we're coming up at beginning of the fall market, 2023. Has 2023 been surprising to you, or what are your thoughts on the current state of the market? Oh well, I think we, you know, we saw we saw what was coming in the second half of 2022. You know, we we could tell that we were going into a very uncertain time, and I think to a large degree, 2023 has fulfilled that promise of of being uncertain. You know, you sort of think you're getting things back on track and then, you know, some inflation numbers coming right. back out, surprise, more interest rate hikes. You know, we had the one brief pause and then went back to a couple of hikes and then again, another pause. I am of the opinion though, that I think the the policies have started to take effect and the, the cooling economy is, is, you know, already, it's already happened. And I think we're going to go into a period of of more calm in terms of interest rate. I think we're done with interest rate hikes for the foreseeable future. And um, but I do think there's a bit of a new normal that will emerge on the other side of this as well. So 
uh, long-winded answer and, and long roundabout way of saying that I, I think 2023 has been a bit of up and down, and I think that's just going to be the future for the next little while. There'll, there'll be some wins and losses and a bit of bumpiness, but nothing catastrophic and nothing that I that I would see as being particularly noteworthy on the other side of it either. And, and do you see interest rates remaining relatively high compared to what we've become used to in, in Canada? Yeah, I mean, it goes way beyond Canada, right? It, it, it really, in my mind, it speaks to what's happened on a, on a global scale, right? We, we had low interest rates in large part, in my you know, opinion, and I'm no economist, as a large degree because of the technological revolution, right? I mean, technology made things cheaper and technology became cheaper. And we were still able to produce a lot of those technologies in places of the world where the labor to produce those things was much cheaper. And that can't go on forever. I mean, we've accelerated, I think, with COVID and everything else, but uh, that's the standards of livings in some of those places where that labor was cheap increases and that no longer makes, you know, it makes products so cheap to develop and energy costs to transport these things across the world become more expensive. There's an inherent pressure on price. You can't maintain that forever. So I, I do think that goods are going to be more expensive to produce because I think we need to do them more sustainably and more ethically. And that will that will mean that interest rates will need to stay a little bit higher. And I think that we're going to, that we have to get used to rates closer to where they are now than where they were two years ago. So, so there's a, there's a interesting kind of, not contradiction, but, but challenge there, right? That goods are going to be more expensive to produce, presumably that includes housing and yet interest rates have to be higher. So presumably there won't be that pressure on pricing in the marketplace during during that time how do you how do you foresee that playing out over the next call it 24 months um maybe even put it out to five years yeah i mean the interesting thing about construction is you know that certainly hasn't been made any cheaper i mean with the, the scarcity of labor is so real and there has not been a significant infusion of technology into how we build i mean the way we build today is not significantly different than we did 30 or 40 years ago, right, or even longer for that matter. There are, there are more components to the buildings. The buildings are more complicated, but they still generally go together with people using their hands and, and putting them together. And so the cost pressures on real estate are insane. So, and, and to a large degree, what is dictating the price of, of new homes is what it costs because most developers, uh, at least that I talk to, are, are working to try and achieve the minimum acceptable yield uh, to justify the risk and to, and frankly, to, to satisfy lenders, um, to lend to, to, to be able to build a project in the first place. So I see that the, the persistent demand and the persistent high pricing will hold pricing of new housing high simply because you can't afford to make it cheaper. It just doesn't work. So then does that mean that there will just be fewer starts? Is there just a relative kind of and not even flatness in price, but just the flatness in the marketplace where there's not that many transactions happening or not that much to buy for the next couple of years? Yeah, I've, I think that's an, uh, to a large degree why we've seen the market hold so strong over the past 12 months in spite of all the, the, the increases in interest rate is because people have held projects back and our starts were lower. And uh, when you when you have high demand and you you pull back on that supply even a little bit, even modestly, it holds prices high. So yeah, I think you're, you're spot on. You'll see fewer projects start or you'll see projects delay until the, the economic conditions are suitable for them to move forward. 
So do you, do you think this low inventory environment then is, is something that's going to be perpetual? I think that's where the, you know, government really needs, to, if they want to be serious about meaningful change to, to affordability, they have to f- figure out how to produce funding mechanisms that allow projects to get financed and built that don't require them to be the year 60 or 70% pre-sold as the case may be. And rental housing on the other, you know, as a, the other part of the supply is, is challenged by these high interest rate environments. And were it not for these, the CMHC programs that are, that are basically involved in almost every rental project that gets built, there would be zero supply because the, the metrics otherwise don't make any sense from an investment perspective. I always wonder about, because right now it seems like labor, getting labor, getting people to, who will actually build for development companies is is very challenging, right? So even if the government, I'm, I'm just thinking, even if the incentives are there, can we build in a in a meaningful timeline? Well, we're you're, you're very right. We're very challenged to to increase the amount that we build in a meaningful way because there are the people are not there. So what we need to do is be able to produce it faster and more efficiently. And what we've done is quite the opposite, in my mind. Needlessly made projects more complicated and more cumbersome and more with all the red tape. So it takes more energy with the same amount of people to build the same number of units, or it takes you know considerably more rather is, is mm-hmm. than it did. At the beginning of my career, you could get in and out of a project and, you know, a a one-year rezoning and you could build a a six-story building in 18 months or a four-story building in 18 months. That that project now takes two to four years to rezone and closer to three years to build. It's in part because of that shortage, but in part is because we've made everything more complicated, more layered, more bureaucratic. Uh, There's more inspections. There's more reporting. And to what end? I'm not sure that we've moved the needle all that much in terms of more sustainable buildings or what have you over that same period of time, but it's certainly more complicated. And so that 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 balance between these competing interests, affordability and sustainability, as an example, is in my mind, it's, it's, it's out of balance. There is no balance. Everybody's talking about affordability, but meanwhile, all we keep doing is making buildings, buildings more complicated, more expensive, and take longer to build with the same number, if not fewer number of people to build them. Two questions. One is, I'm interested in kind of just hearing, because one thing we haven't really, we've talked about sustainability and kind of new levels of technology when it comes to to building homes on the show before. I haven't, we or we haven't talked all that much about how really the technology hasn't changed that much in the last, like, why do you think that is? Because it does, as you said that now, it's like, there's not many things that you know, you could probably go back to 1980 and go, oh, they're doing it exactly the same or nearly the same. Why do you think there's that that kind of, there hasn't been much in terms of technology when it comes to building homes? I think it's difficult because projects are built in a, a non-controlled environment. You know, when you build cars or TVs in a factory where you're building thousands of, thousands of them repetitively, you can create and justify the uh, cost of massive investments in that infrastructure to build those things, whether it be robotically or with production lines, et cetera. When you build a real estate project, you build it once and then you never build it again. Right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, and in part that's, that's because of, you know, every new, no two properties are the same. I mean, you can try to become formulaic about your approach, but there's always going to be grades and, and views and different things that you need to account for. Right. So you never build the same thing exactly twice. And that's part of the reason. So if you, you know, where, where companies have tried to standardize and go to modular type building systems, the challenge is always that 
if you don't design to their building, and if you, or if you can't, then it doesn't work because they they need to be so specific. They need to be designed in such a way that they stack just perfectly, or that they're of certain dimensions and or have certain spans. And it's rare that that happens to fit the piece of property that you may want to develop on. And so that's why we really haven't seen the proliferation of you know what what little in investment in technology there's been is is in this modular housing concept where they try and build pieces of it in factories. But it's it's tough to 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 put into action. This was a conversation we had with someone off the record, so I remain nameless, but the idea was that he was commenting on a lead project that they had developed that took a long, a much longer, way more of a procedure with way more regulation. And at the end of the day, it was his construction manager, basically their perception that it was really no more efficient than the buildings they typically build. Is there a lot of optics in what people perceive as as um, forward-thinking buildings or forward buildings? Yeah, I think there is. I, I think much of it gets conceived in in textbooks and in in maybe you know univ- university classrooms that uh, are well-intentioned, but the the practical reality of them, you know, is is I don't know how effective they are. And as an example, I, and I, I won't say which project, but I, I walked onto a project at one point and saw a copper coil. What what had to amount to have been meters and meters and meters and meters of con- copper wrapped around a plumbing stack, and the intention here is is heat recovery off, and it was a it was a, a drain coming out of a shower in I think the second bedroom of a townhome, and I thought to myself, there is no way the carbon footprint of that much copper could ever justify the amount of heat recovery off this shower and and, and but but we had to do it to meet some point under you know step code or lead or whatever the case may be i don't even remember but it's that kind of thing right like the cost that we added the time that it added and frankly is it environmentally better i would argue no Mm -hmm. and you could take that example and just multiply it by the hundreds through every project and and nobody talks about it because nobody wants to come across as, as sounding like they don't care about the environment. Sure. That's not it. What I'm saying is the balance is out of whack. There is no balance. But it's the perception of the environment at the cost of potentially affordability or delivering more homes in a timely manner. Yeah, all these other, I call them competing objectives. Yeah, whether right. it's social initiatives, environmental initiatives, what have you. There's all these different competing objectives that all work against affordability. You want you know, we're never going to create affordability. Let's be honest. So our objective here as builders and and what should be the objectives of all the people uh policymakers should be we got to stop it from becoming continually and more and more unaffordable. Right. Like I I've never I've never seen a city in the world that became very expensive to live in all of a sudden become affordable. It's never happened. I don't know why we think we're going to be different, <laughs> right. right? I would love to see two things. I'd love to see us work on the supply side around making things more efficient. You know, let's let's make things easier to build. And that's not just about getting approvals faster. That's also about what we build. Let's make them easier to build. Not every building has to be the Shangri-La. Not every building needs to be lead platinum. We need buildings to be efficient. We need them to be easy to build. We need them to 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 happen more quickly uh, so that the same number of people, those those scarce resources, can actually produce more units. The second part of, of the conversation around creating affordability is, and again, nobody talks about it, is creating prosperity. If people have more money, then then the affordability 
is better, right? We only ever want to talk about affordability in terms of making something less expensive. Well, that doesn't happen, or at least is proven to be very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. So the other piece that we can control is to put more money in people's pockets. And that's things like taxation and, you know, friendly business climates and all those other things that, you know, I don't think there's enough of a conversation about. Interesting. Just to go back to to the the kind of complicated nature it sounds like I was, of of building you know there's fewer people today available to build more complicated buildings it sounds like the answer is is just to streamline and kind of make it less complicated in your minds because it doesn't seem like there's going to be more people anytime soon that in terms of knowing how to build high rises townhomes like canada seems understaffed <laughs> when it oh, comes yeah. to uh, to building. So that's basically the only, because it does seem like there's a log jam there, but the, the way to get through it is is to make things less complicated in your mind. Well, yeah, I, that's part of it. I think just like anything, there's it, it's rare that there's a one solution answer to right. a problem. I think that's part of it and, and should be step one. The second part is how do we get more people building buildings? Because we need them. We need more labor in every sector. My two cents on this is that 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 comes into immigration policy and and who we bring into the country and needing to do a better job of bringing in the the types of uh, people with the types of skills rather that that fit the need and and more importantly is uh, I think we need to relook at how we are influencing our young people in high schools. Uh, I had a an interesting conversation with with Yurki Lume of all people, and I hope he doesn't mind me quoting him on this. Who, who talked about what it was like in Finland as a young boy? Do you remember Yurki? Yeah, Lume? yeah. He, uh, he's a, a friend of my wife's uncle, and we got to chatting at a hockey game one day, and he talked about how in Finland, at, at about grade 10, I think he said, you can see this seems super random. It, it is very, it's very random. <laughs> yeah. going. Uh, but he, he talked about how in Finland, you make a decision about grade 10. Are you going to pursue trades? Or are you going to pursue university? And, and I thought, oh my God, what a simple yet amazingly powerful idea. Like not everybody needs to go through the same courses in high school as if you're going to go pursue some uh, business degree or arts degree at a university. Why are we not creating an environment in our schools that are more conducive to people pursuing trades, skilled trades, uh, people that are going to work with their hands and with tools and, and encourage that in a way that is with the equal emphasis as we do university. Because I went through high school, as you guys did, all you ever talk about is what university credits you need, what university or college. Nobody ever talked about the trades. No one ever talked about Hey, you could t- you could decide now to go pursue this, and you know, rather than spending the next four years in university, you could probably be making six figures at the end of that period of time, which is the truth today. Yeah, there's incredibly well-paying jobs. It is it is hard work, but it is gratifying work because you see you see the you know the result of your effort every day, and it pays very very well. And and it's more uh, in terms of like the, you know the threats that we keep hearing about AI and all the rest. I mean, it's pretty secure work. It seems hard to imagine that that work's going away anytime soon. Yeah, no, I don't imagine in our lifetimes we're ever going to see robots installing pipes in buildings. Like yeah. it's not going to happen. Right. We're, we're, we're ages away from that. So I think, yeah, it's a great point. It's also not a bad, I mean, if you're, if your goal is, and we have a lot of people that listen to the program that want to get into the development community in some capacity and I mean, even thinking about your experience of being on the job sites and deciding that you wanted to do this on the business side, uh, it's not a bad launching pad, right? So, I mean, it's to have to have that as a background is never a, a bad thing, I would imagine. Absolutely, yeah. No, it, it, to have the appreciation of what it takes is is huge. Hey, everyone. 
Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. You know, Jason, just thinking about going back maybe to the market here a little bit and and then the new normal of kind of higher interest rates for longer and what that means for not only the new construction space, but the but the resale space. I think a lot of people that have either been in the market or in the industry or participating in the real estate market over the last 10 to 15 years have gotten used to low interest rates, obviously, but then these crazy demand shocks where it's like, you know, whenever 2014 and then kind of slowed down and then... 2017 was really big. And then uh, the COVID bump. And it's like these, we go through kind of not super long downturns and then crazy demand shock where it's, you know, eight, 10 offers on everything. Is that, you know, looking back, interest rates, of course, played a huge role. And I think at the time we all understood that. But of course, the, the price of assets across the board is going up in that low interest rate environment. I'm just wondering, the new normal is that, are we going to look back at the two, 2010s as like a, a unique period? Or do you foresee those kind of demand shocks continuing through the next 10 years? Or is it an entirely new marketplace where it's, it's like there's a new no- normal when it comes to real estate consumption? I think probably we would need to expect that, that what we've witnessed over the past 20 years to, to a large degree uh, will be unique. Because I, I do think that we're going to have to get used to slightly higher interest rates. And I'm not talking about double digit interest rates and all that business, but, you know, in that, you know, in that four to 5%, you know, rate range for five-year uh, mortgages. And what that means is that deals just have a, a greater demand on capital. You know, every deal, whether it's you buying a condo or an investment property, or even your home takes a little bit more cash because you can't borrow as much. And, and the more cash each individual deal takes, I mean, the, the logic is simple. There's fewer of them that happen. The unknown is is really, you know, the government involvement piece. You know, how does immigration, you know, what changes to immigration policy come about if we have a new government, uh, as an example, federally? What do they do with uh, foreign investment, which we've largely turned off on the residential side, which I have all kinds of opinions about if you care to ask about them. But <laughs> there's some unknowns there. But with without 
you know, knowing where those pieces go, I think the simple solution or simple conclusion would be that we will see softer um, a growth in in real estate. I, I do think that real estate is a finite uh, commodity, particularly in the, particularly in our part of the world, and will continue to see growth. But I would fully expect it to be more moderated over the next ten years versus the last. I, I want to get into the uh, foreign buyer <laughs> question. <laughs> can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, I think where this whole topic of affordability really went rampant is when we saw affordability on the rental side go bananas, right? Because condos and single family homes in Vancouver were always historically unaffordable. I mean, for as long as I've been doing this, 20 Mm -hmm. years, Vancouver has been the highest real estate market in the country, one of the highest on the continent, and certainly on that global scale as well. But what we had during that time was somewhat of a I would say an undervalued, if you will, rental market, because when you looked at what rents were relative to the cost of condo, it made no sense. You know, you you were better to buy a condo and rent it in Calgary than you were in Vancouver, because at, at a point not that long ago, rents in Calgary were higher than they were in Vancouver, but the price per square foot of a condo was considerably less. I mean, that just makes no sense. Um, what we've seen over the past few years is quite a reversal of that. We are now the highest rental rate in the country. And I can't help to correlate the timing of when that really became pronounced to when they they announced the foreign buyer tax in in this province. Uh, because were it not for the decades of you know investment into rental or sorry into condos, which ultimately became the secondary rental stock, I think that that unaffordability in rental that we see today would have happened much earlier because it was supplying the marketplace with rental at a time when the industry was supplying almost none. And now the industry is supplying quite a bit, especially compared to say 10 or 15 years ago, but we're still seeing rental rates increase through the roof. And I have this strong sense that there's a correlation and that the unintended consequence of banning foreign buyers was that it pushed so much demand onto purpose-built rental and and took so much supply out of the rental market that rates went crazy. That's interesting. So, and we've talked a little bit about this, that of course, pre-construction needs to sell a certain number of units before it can get financed and get built. And a lot of that money was coming from around the world. And in 2016, that kind of shut off. And in the last, call it five years, a lot of that's been local, but you need to see or at least have the ability to foresee a potential yield or an appreciation on that asset, right? And it strikes me as your idea of the next 10 years being where you're not going to see double-digit returns in real estate as that local market probably dries up in a lot of respects, right? It Does it dry up? In, no, maybe not. Because I was going to say, if that's the case, I'm just wondering about is the investment, does the world want to invest in Vancouver real estate right now, I guess? I'm not sure they do in the way they once did. I, I still think it's it's there's a huge appeal, right? Because be, anywhere in the world where people want to move, you're going to see investment in real estate because there's demand. There's demand, whether it be a renter or or somebody looking to buy a, a home or a condo, there will be investment. But the more difficult you make it, you know, the more the more barriers uh, that you that you have to overcome, or the the um, I guess that that discerning investor will will potentially look elsewhere or or be prepared to invest fewer dollars into this market. And yeah, it has it has an influence. But I think 
I wouldn't want to overstate that by any stretch of the imagination. Like, you know, we we our company is is in partnerships with several companies, headquarters out east. Their interest in this market is still very real. As they still see it as a huge opportunity, and and that's a, a big change from when I first started in this business, where I think the vast majority of real estate development happened from capital that was already here, you know, family money. Mm-hmm. It was sort of the 80-20 rule. I think I heard Bob Rennie say this maybe once, that 80% of the uh, property that got developed 20 years ago was from local families. 20% might have been an in- institutional-like uh, investment, and it's now the other way around. It's more 80% institutional, 20% local. And that that's being kind of shaken up right now because the, the institutional money is certainly sitting on the sidelines, but they're still very interested. Mm. Are we doing right enough right now to incentivize purpose-built rentals? I don't think you could possibly do enough. I think the programs that we have through CMHC are a good start. But notwithstanding these these programs that have provided uh, means for a lot of rental to get built, the challenges are very real. Interest rates being what they are mean each of these rental buildings require more equity and the yields on them become very scarce. Construction costs are through the roof. You've got every municipality looking to try and squeeze in additional affordability into these units, which again, make pro formas harder to rationalize and things take longer. And uh, so, you know, and, and the one BMI bonnet that I have with rental housing continues to be GST. It's the single largest line item in our pro forma outside of hard costs and land. Like, you know, it, more than any architect, more than any marketing effort or anything, mm-hmm. you know, GST is a massive cost to rental housing that is so obvious to address, but hasn't changed in I think about 17 years. That's that's mind-boggling. And it's also just an easy, like, that seems like an easy fix. And, and the logical one, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they set thresholds for the GST rebate, like I said, about, I think it was about 17 years ago was the last time they adjusted it. Well, think about that, right? Not one rental housing unit in this province that gets built would qualify even for the smallest of credits. So every rental unit that's built is paying 5% of its value to the federal government that's just gone. It's 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 a cost to the project. And of course, that just keeps pushing rents up higher and higher in order for projects to be justified. And it would be so simple, one, to just eliminate it. But if you were worried about, which is always the worry, well, developers just make more money, at, a, at the very least, take that money and put it back into the affordability that we're trying so hard to create, whether that's through direct subsidies mm-hmm. or rebates or what have you. It's so obvious of an opportunity for the federal government to do something meaningful to try and create that affordability that is so hard to do. And it's just been a total miss and and it's not being talked about enough. Okay, Jason. So just, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about West in place because it sounds like you're doing a lot of mar- apartment building market rental right now. But this is actually a, a strata that you're that you're building West in place. Yeah, so this is a, a site that we acquired uh, from the District of West Vancouver in a, a partnership of sorts with Kiwanis Housing. So the the district had some excess land. They put out for tender. What they were hoping to get was offers for a market condo building or a market building, and um, and and then the north half of the site was for family oriented. Um, subsidized housing, so affordable family housing. So that was where Kiwanis Housing came in. And so we jointly bid the site and were uh, were awarded uh, the property uh, not long after I started, two years ago. And they're sort of doing their own thing now. The the tender was was joint, but from that point, we're sort of each uh, managing our respective projects, they being Kiwanis. And what we have designed is 57 
uh, homes. They average about 1,200 square feet. So we're, we're anywhere from 750 square foot feet for a one bedroom up to 2,100, I think is our larger. Right. Yeah. Larger area. homes. Yeah. They're a little on the larger side, recognizing where we are and, and are well suited for that. So I call them lifestyle upsizers, you know, people looking for the lock and leave freedom coming out of a single family home, but looking for some space. Um, and particularly in West Vancouver, where their homes are probably a little larger than elsewhere. And uh, I think it'll be well suited for that group. And we were talking before, I'm just curious because this strategy of launching a project right now, again, this is definitely not investor, you're not focusing on investors here. This isn't a bunch of studios and, and one beds, although there are some one beds. Presumably the the end users uh, are downsizers, not as interest rate sensitive. The timelines may potentially work. Was there Was there a lot of strategy around thinking about this project specifically as being one of the first strata to to launch yeah there there was obviously you know watching what was happening in the market we were we were asking all those questions is it the right time and i think when we look at who our our customer is you know they're they're probably less interest rate sensitive than than other buyers um Many of them probably aren't looking to have a mortgage at all. What they probably are most interested in knowing is is that there's some stability in the marketplace because the the last twelve months have been fairly uncertain and and uh, sort of ups and downs and just having that sense that hey, when I sell my home in two or three years' time, when this building is finished, what's the order of magnitude of my equity? And if you're having comfort in that, and right. I think I think the sense that we have now is that people understand one that the sky hasn't and isn't falling. Uh, and that the, the the real estate market, in spite of the the increases, has been relatively stable, and and now we're into what I think most people project as a flat interest rate environment. So I think we've got a group now that can have some comfort in how much their home is worth and make that buying decision. Makes a lot of sense, Jason. In thinking about kind of areas you're excited about, I know you're kind of li- living and breathing uh, North Vancouver right now or North Shore. Yeah, right do now. we get into the weeds on which streets <laughs> you like, or <laughs> <laughs> but just to open it up, where where are you excited about in the Lower Mainland? Kind of seeing how areas have developed over over the years since we spoke to you last, and then as a second part to that question, maybe what you're ex- where you're excited about in BC provincially. Yeah, I think this is going to sound a bit biased because we're a North Shore focused developer, but actually we have we have nothing active in the Lower Lonsdale area. Um, but I live not too far from there, and I just I absolutely love that that zone and what they've done down there. I think the vibrancy when you go down on a Friday night now versus what it was when I actually lived in Lower Lonsdale back in two thousand five, six, seven is night and day. Right? It, it yeah. is. It is. It reminds me of what Yale Town was. You know, in in 2006, seven, like it was, I think Yale Town's had a bit of a transformation of its own, but it's, you know, the patios are full. There's kids splashing in the splash park. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the hotel seems to be doing reasonably well. The restaurants are packed, you know, and I, I think as a community uh, to live in and the proximity to downtown, but having all those North Shore amenities, you know, within a few minutes uh, makes it a pretty unique multifamily neighborhood that I'm super pumped about. I think it's, I think it's tremendous. Yeah. So I, if I pick locally, that's generally where I go is lower lawn still. I think it's, it's just fantastic. That's a great one. Yeah. What about in the province? Hmm. Um, you know, I, there's so many great places in our province that are, that are special in their own regard. I think the, the trend through COVID that we saw of, of people leaving to smaller communities was maybe more pronounced then, but I think we'll continue a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
places like Penticton, Salmon Arm, some of these places that I've driven through and spent time in, wonderful little communities. Are they are they growth markets like like we would see in, say, a larger place like Kelowna? Probably not, but there will be opportunities. And I think those communities need to grow because we can't keep packing everybody that's coming into this province into Vancouver. It just it, There's just no room. So I've, I've sort of joked in the past that the problem we have in Canada is we have too few cities because we really do. We have like six cities, legitimate cities. It's, right. It's not enough. You know, we need new cities and Penticton's not about to become a new urban metropolis, but yeah. there's some smaller communities that I think are so charming and have some some very unique opportunities. I like are that. You take, are you taking the Okanagan over the island? You know, I haven't spent nearly as much time on the island as I have in the Okanagan. I, I've spent some time in places like Courtney and and uh, on the Gulf Islands. And so I kind of have a partiality to those, but I, I just don't know the island as well, to be honest. I have to ask, you have a niece, she's wanting to make a real estate investment in the residential space in the lower mainland budget of, let's call it a million bucks. Where and what are you buying or advising her to buy? Uh, it's so personal. My advice would be, you know, decide where you want to live, right? And why, you know, love where you live, right? You want to love where you are. And that. I don't think that has to be one location, but I think it's around looking, okay, I could, I could buy here and it has these things and, or this is really important to me. I'm, I'm into mountain biking or I'm into, you know, whatever, scuba diving, anything. And pick your location based on, on where you want to be. And then I, I would say when you're buying, um, buy concrete, if you can, right? I think concrete construction is, is just tried and tested and as much as the, the wood frame buildings are way better than they used to be. And they really are. Mm-hmm. I'm partial to concrete construction uh, and know who you're buying from. I get asked quite a bit, like, who's the best developer? And I'm like, well, what does that even mean? Who cares who the best developer is? Who's the best builder, right? That that You want to know that you're buying from somebody that's building for themselves or that the person building for them or the company building for them is as, as, a, as a track record and knows what they're doing because it's really about who builds it that's going to determine the quality. It, it reminds me almost of Hanny's uh, answer of, of like buy tier one, like almost right, like buy buy the area that you see you see a lot of lifestyle in, but also buy a product that if you love it, chances are somebody else is going to love it. Yeah, I believe he said buy any Cressy condo, which yeah, <laughs> <I think laughs> <it's> very appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, he's not wrong. I mean, buying quality will ne- you'll never go wrong, right? You, you, you know, to the extent you can, and certainly with a million dollar budget, you should be able to still do that. Uh, it won't get you what it once did, but. But buy where you want to be. I hear stories all the time about people feeling like they want more space, so they go way out to a suburb somewhere, and then they end up not happy and actually taking smaller space and coming yeah. back towards, you know, and that's not necessarily back towards the city, but back into an area that they actually prefer. And so I think starting with location is the key for me. You, you need a lot of space in your house when you're going to be at home a lot more. For sure, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's the that's the trade off of, of of going. Up it further. is interesting though because we were just talking about this this morning. Like, and this is even in Vancouver. We we're talking about two locations in Vancouver, but one you can get eight hundred square feet for the same prices, getting five hundred square feet in a location you really want to be. And I said to Sonia, who works with us, like I'm taking five hundred square feet all day over eight hundred square feet somewhere. You're kind of like, huh. I don't even, there's not, what am I doing here? Like, 
Yeah, yeah, I'd prefer that anyway. Where, where does your family go out of curiosity? <laughs> maybe as a, as a final question before we... Uh, that, that, maybe we, that's why he wants to buy money. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> this fantasy, Sorry, guys, <laughs> this fantasy stuck for a while. Yeah. As Maybe as a final question, Jason, and then we'd love if you could stick around for the five wire, five lighthearted questions to end the show. Wouldn't miss it. Oh, perfect. Great. <laughs> what do you think the market's going to do in the next one, three, five years? I know we've kind of touched on this a bit, but... Do you think it's going to be, first of all, we're at the beginning of, of basically, well, I guess, the unofficial Q4 of the market, but we're, we've got a few months left in 2023. And then what are your thoughts on next year? That's maybe a better way to frame it. I think I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see a little bit of a run on price. And I say a little bit, not like we would have seen in some of those other big runs, but uh, in the second half of next year, because I do think we're, we're into a stable rate environment. The The economy will take a bit of a kicking around a little bit, but there's still so much capital out there, so much wealth um, that once the rates come down, which I expect be midpoint of next year, there will be a re-engagement. Anytime people sit on the sidelines in this market, inevitably, whether it was the foreign buyer tax or any of the measures that have ever come in that have put a pause on things, you see that resumed activity, which puts a run on it. I do think it'll be more measured, like we talked about earlier, right? Like the, the rates aren't going back to 2% 2% for a five-year mortgage. It's not going to happen. So, But but I see the second half of next year being pretty active. And, and I, I think that's why I have some confidence in pre-sale right now, because you're not, even if you are somebody who's relying on, on mortgage and a bit more interest rate sensitive, you're entering into a decision to buy at today's values, knowing that you don't have to commit to a mortgage for two, three, or even four years, because some of these bigger projects take mm-hmm. that long. And so I, I could see pre-sale being particularly active, maybe disproportionately to the recovery on the single family side, which is sort of more immediate, I could see pre-sale getting a little more active, which is which is a great thing. I think mm-hmm. it'd be awesome to see more activity on pre-sale. Anecdotally, it feels that way. Like I feel like a lot more conversations we're having with buyers, it's that can I save more money, right, right now while I'm while I'm waiting, but also assuming the rate will be in a better place than it is currently, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, a, that, I've seen a lot of people that traditionally wouldn't have opted for pre-sale now deciding that's probably the approach. Yeah, there's some sense to that, for sure. Five wire. Five wire. Five <laughs> quick, lighthearted you, questions in I the show. I knew this was coming. I took some notes. <laughs> Good. Okay. <laughs> okay. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive, tried, and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. So question number one, what is one book that you've read recently that you would recommend for all of our listeners? Oh man, I I fear that I'm going to give you the same answer I did so many years ago, which is not to say that I haven't read any books since then, (laughs) but I've actually had a a run of books where I I wasn't totally enthused about them. But I, I read a book a while ago called The Happiness Advantage, and I want to read it again because there were so many pieces of of that book that I think anybody, whether you're trying to apply to a business context or not, could could really benefit from. It was a really really excellent book. And the is it the advantage of a positive attitude or what is essentially yeah, yeah. and how how uh, you know the way you view the world and 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 having happiness in your life you know productivity all these things everything changes as soon as you look at everything through this sort of more positive lens it's it's very effective oh, fantastic 
In the last few years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? So I gave some thought to this one, and and I, I decided to be a little vulnerable and admit to having done. I we guess, like vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you get to an age in your in your in your life where you know you go some th- through some journeys, and uh, I've I've had the fortune of doing some some therapy with a, a few different counselors, where a lot of the emphasis tends to be around learning how to empathize with other people, uh, as opposed to I have this tendency to get very defensive. It must be about me. So I've worked a lot with my therapist and and uh, my wife and I have, have done some of that together around really trying to understand what's going on for that other person. And you can take that into the work context just as easily as you can into your personal life. So that that focus on me trying to understand why is this person acting this way? It must, you know, what, what could be going on in their life? It's been a pretty cool journey for me. Huh. That's, that's, that is profound. That's a, I feel like we've talked about that before, just not on the show, but that idea of, yeah, what's, what is going, cause everyone's dealing with their own stuff. Right. And I oh, mean, yeah. that's, that's part of it. I, I can uh, relate to that in the sense that I'm a fixer. And every time my wife has a problem, I try to fix. And now I've learned that it's never about fixing. It's about, yeah. <laughs> it's about listening. <laughs> See, now, if my wife were sitting here, she'd probably give you a very different answer. Yeah. <laughs> what do you even know about empathy? Yeah. You know? but, uh, <laughs> uh, question number three, what have you been binge watching lately or a favorite movie recommendation? So we've just gotten into this neat program called, uh, I think it's called the blue zone. Uh, oh, I started that too. Yeah. Uh, Joe, my wife, discovered it and and sort of told me about it. We got in some episodes of that, and uh, that's a, that's a very fascinating thing because it kind of combines all these different, you know, why are people living so long in these particular reasons? Is it health? Is it activity? And all these kind of theories we have around longevity of life, yeah, um, yeah. And some of them kind of getting debunked a little bit. I I found it very very interesting. So that's that's what Is we're Peter into right Atia now. In there? No, it's the it's the guy. I think this guy's been on Rich Roll and all these other podcasts where he's ta- the guy who wrote the Blue Zone oh, book. Oh, the, the host. Wrote the Blue yeah, Zone. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mediterranean diet and Japan. And well, the thing about that. Sardinia, I don't know if I think that's episode two that's where right, it's yeah. like the certain villages to get the church they got to walk straight awesome. uphill and, they and all their houses <laughs> have tons of stairs because yeah they live they live to 120 whereas the guys down the street without uh, the same need to go up or uh, like friend of 85 mine, we were just uh, traveling for a wedding and uh, a friend of ours was staying with us and she said she went up the stairs and she was like man i'm winded my house doesn't have any stairs and I was a sure like, sign. it's funny though like little things like that actually if you're running up and down the stairs all day at home it's it's affects you it's right? actually my my i have this secret little bugaboo about about our office and it's not the office it's it's when i see people because we work on the fourth floor and the elevator's tragically slow yeah so i don't i've used it maybe three times since we've been there and i see young healthy fit people standing there waiting for the elevator and i run to the top of the fourth the, the four flights of stairs 20 seconds faster than the elevator takes to get there and i'm like guys just take the stairs man <laughs> Well, the other thing about that in episode one, because I've, I've watched the first two is, uh, and I think this goes to like Tim Ferriss and being in Japan, they're in this island in Japan where these, oh, they've yeah, got furniture. these 98 year old guys Sitting squatting and, right. you know, it's moving around on their hands. It's like unreal. Yeah. Um, that's why they have the, the, the Western hotels and the Japanese hotels, right? Where it's like, cause it's not comfortable for you to stay at the, Oh, Japanese I can't even hotel. touch my toes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Question number four is a favorite band or music. 
Oh, I, I've really started to get into some of the new country music that's that's happening right now. It's, you know, like mm-hmm. the old school stuff, bit twangy. I was okay, I could take it. Yeah, some of this new kind of southern rock bluesy type country is going on now. Like you know, guys like Chris Stapleton. Yeah, preaching to the choir here. Very, yeah. very cool stuff in the country music scene right now. But you know, I think a lot of it for me is I play a little guitar. Not well. Don't I mean I'm, I, I won't bring it in here. <laughs> <laughs> but anything I can play along with, and country's great for that. So uh, I'll awesome. go with that. Right on. Uh, last but not least, Jason, something you have purchased for under fifteen hundred dollars in the last year or two that has a had a very positive impact on your life. I'm gonna have to cheat on this one a little bit because I actually don't buy very much stuff for myself. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty frugal, but but I'm cheating in the sense that it was I think a little over fifteen hundred, but not much. We we bought my wife uh, sort of an entry level cycle cross bike. Cause I, I kind of like to cycle. I'm not super avid, but I really enjoyed it. And I was always encouraging her to get into it and something we could do that's healthy and kind of fun together. And so this earlier this summer, we, we bought her a real entry level bike and, and uh, this summer we went on a number of rides together and I just, it was so much fun. I, yeah. I love getting out there and, and, you know, a couple hours and putting some kilometers on the bikes. And we were able to do that together for kind of the first time because we, we got into that. So it was something that I encouraged, but I actually bought for her. It wasn't for me, but it certainly was. Good way to cool. see the city. And uh, if I remember anything about your first appearance, it was a gift for your wife as well. I think that was the best money you had spent. So I think that's twice. <laughs> oh, man. I don't remember that. But uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to go back. But yeah, uh, self, selfless guy. Jason, how can people find out about what you're up to and, of course, about Darwin Properties? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Check us out on our website, Google Darwin. We're on uh, all the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram. Our website and uh, social media is under both Darwin Properties and Construction. So either one of those, you'll find all the information about our company as both a general contractor and a service provider and a, and a developer with all of our new communities. Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming in, Jason. That was great. Thank you, guys. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with president of Darwin Properties, Jason Turcott. Really enjoyed that conversation with Jason. Always great having him on the show. Yeah, great just good reconnecting him. with that guy. I know. It's been a while, but um, yeah, always great insights into the market, into the development community, into real estate in general. Love that episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. The other thing I want to bring up, Matt, is we were texting last night, Jaden... Uh, who, oh, Jaden Lee. Jaden Lee, who who um, we've been talking a lot about on the show right now. He's hanging out with Rich Roll right now. <laughs> he's in, at the uh, he's at some running thing in California. Where all I the think. big, you know, who else is there? Uh, Your Jesse favorite Eisler. guy? No, no, no. Um, the guy who used to be a prison guard. Oh, uh, what's his name? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Ken Rideout. Ken Rideout. The whole, I feel like every, if you ever listen to like Rich Roll or any of those yeah. types of podcasts that, where they're ultra runners and the, the wow. kind of incredible. I asked him for the wrong autograph. I, I would, well, I'll take Rich Roll's, but we're, we were trying to get a Rich Roll podcast uh, or a Rich Roll autograph for the podcast yeah. studio. So. Good Ken Rideout's there as well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's down there um, at the, in the world's largest sauna. 
Wow. And he deserves it for all the good work he's done. He does. He, he absolutely deserves it. What else do we have before we cut for the day, Matt? What else do we have? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live, including the entire back catalog. This includes the Commercial Real Estate Podcast and the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. So if you're interested in evergreen content that goes back nearly a decade and we don't repeat ourselves too often on this show. You can search it up and find it there. We have the Live Wire. This is our weekly mailer with deal of the month, stats before anyone else, different types of stats. We have uh, tried and true, Adam, private client services. Yeah, I'll start by saying we never repeat ourselves on the show here. Uh, <laughs> And Matt, if you are have not used PCS, you're standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information for free. It's available at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Just click buy with us and you can set up your own free account. I sometimes feel like the micro machine, man. Do you remember the micro machine? Yes, guy? I do. And uh, I would say you have that so down. I can say it fast. You, yeah. I can say it. I also was thinking that the guy that I used to do UFC, Bruce, Bruce, Bruce Buffer. Bruce Buffer. Yeah, you could also pull that off. Yeah. It is, I thought you were going with, it's always a good time to have private client services account set up. I would say especially right now, because yeah. there's pockets of the market that are active. There's pockets of the market that are decidedly inactive. Market is is softening, I would argue. Yeah, oh, um, across the board. Certain, there's pockets of uh, activity, of course. But, um, and you know what, like always in Vancouver, this is one thing I think that people just need to know, but the great inventory, like the really, you know, turnkey, yeah. uh, you know, box tickers, they always sell. If you find your dream property come up on MLS or, or on private client services, don't sleep on it, like reach out and and get, get in and get viewing it because you want to be first on the great ones. But there is stuff hanging around longer right now. There's fewer multiple offers and yeah, there's, there's some deals to be had. So definitely get on PCS. Matt, how can people get in touch with you? Well, they'll find you at the Pumpkin Patch and they can try me at 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at my on my new iPhone 15 at 778 <laughs> a week for that. <laughs> Going from the 10 to the 15. Uh, 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We, of course, have that nonpartisan Kokomo line info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com as well. And have a great week and so many fantastic episodes coming up. I cannot wait. Andrew list is coming back yeah and jordan mcdonald and we've got so many great episodes oh. booked this is going to be a great q4 at the vancouver real estate podcast have a good week two thousand faces for radio subscribe today 